Hi, I'm Amy Porter. Some of you know me as a flutist and a classical musician, others as a professor, and some of you know me as a publisher and arranger. I'm a stepmom, I'm a business owner, and I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. And this is my podcast. My core mission as an entrepreneur is to appreciate what I have around me. And then I try and see as clearly as possible how I can help. So let's talk. Let's share information. Let's laugh and sometimes cry over the things that we have to work through in life and in music, in business and family and relationships. Come on into my Porter Flute pod. Testing, one, two. Testing, one, two. I think we're in. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. This is season two, episode four. It's our business 101 category, and we're calling it Microphone Basics. Where do we place the microphone when we're trying to record? And what is a preamp? What is gain? Stay tuned. The man behind the board from me for the last 20 years, his name is Dave Shaw of Dave Shaw Acoustic. He'll be answering all our questions and giving us a lot of information. With us in the pod is Justine Sedke and Alan J. Tomasetti. Get out your notebooks. Dave is going to make you sound great. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. I'm so glad you're here. Dave Shaw, my favorite person behind my microphone, thank you so much for being on Porter Flute Pod. Um, I know you're a podcast person, so thank you for being on a podcast. Uh, are you on many podcasts? No, I'm on almost no podcasts. I mean, I'm a, I'm a regular listener of This American Life and Radio Lab and The Moth, but what I do is I do, I sit in my studio and I edit audio and video and I record concerts and I do demos for people and I I tour, I do all sorts of stuff. The bulk of my work is as an audio engineer, live and recording and post-production and video work. I work with THS Audio, my friend Dave's company. We uh, we provide sound for the Michigan Theater. Um, I'm the touring front of house engineer and production manager for the National Arab Orchestra. And I've done, I've done stints as the touring engineer for Fareed Hawk and Math Games. Um, I used to tour with My Dear Disco. Some of you may know some of those guys as Wolfpack now, and I work with them occasionally live. Um, not so much now because they're all out in LA, but you know, I've got a pretty broad spectrum, and now I do recording work for City Music Cleveland and all of my favorite people at University of Michigan, which I've been doing for 23 years. It's amazing the ear that you have that crosses between classical music and... Uh, indie music and Arab music. Let's get to the agenda of recording ourselves. What is the setup we need and, and the recommended equipment that you would say? Uh, we'll get into the do's and don'ts, but right. just the basic setup in the spaces we have now. What are the basic things people can order and it'll show up at their door and what's the best space to use that in well let's uh let's talk about um i'm going to do this and describe this in two methods because we're not going to be living in covid forever hopefully um but covid poses some restrictions and i've been seeing a lot of people's media um the biggest problem besides 
improper setup of the equipment that they're using, improper gain structure, the technical, is the spaces that you're in. You know, the okay, so you're in a boxy room. Guess what? It's going to sound like a boxy room. You know, everybody on this podcast, I want you to just sit quietly for a second and listen to the room you're in. Listen to the noise floor, which is the HVAC system. Can you hear the refrigerator running? Is there street noise? Is Do you have a cat in the corner that's, that's washing itself? Is your dog whining? Um, can you hear voices in the next apartment? Um, is there a hum from something like your computer or whatever? There's always a background. And if you can hear any of it, you have to make that, make yourself aware of what sounds are leaking into your recording. If it's not dead silent, you have a problem. Then there's the acoustics of the room. And all of our house spaces have a sound. Um, you might notice that you probably don't hear a ton of the room that I'm in right now. And that's because I'm in the control room of my home studio where I do all of my mixing. Um, Amy, I want you to do something for me. Sit back from your microphone, unmute yourself, like leave it open. Now I want you to just clap really loudly over your head. Now you notice that that's not dead. Now take your microphone and put it next to your bed. This is Amy Porter moving her, she's using a blue Yeti. Lay it down on the bed facing up. Because she has a substantial comforter here. Now I want you to clap over top of now, well, did you hear that? There's a big difference. All of a sudden, you hear more of the room. Now, if you if you surround that with softer objects, it's going to absorb more of the sound, and you won't hear that, that sort of tail of the room, the reverb. Now, if you're in a hall, you want to capture some of that hall sound, but not at the expense of your direct sound. It has to be a fine ratio of your direct sound versus the space you're in. And... The biggest issue I see with people who record themselves is they place their recording source, their microphone, which is either your phone, your iPad, your microphones, your camera, whatever, too far away from where they are. If you're more than 10 or 12 feet away, don't. Just stop. It's going to sound bad. It's going to sound like you're sitting outside the hall. Whatever you're hearing in that space where you're sitting is going to be magnified by mics that are sensitive they're going to hear more of the space it's going to cloud your sound reverb doesn't help when you're making a critical recording they want to hear the detail in your sound but they also want to hear how you fill the space it's a trade-off i hear people say oh we shouldn't be getting this close and you know i record from the lip of the stage with omnidirectional mics these are microphones that hear all the way around the micro all the way around the mic so it gives me a nice get close hear everything it work it's an it's a nice balance most of the microphones that people will be working with are going to be cardioid directional hot in the front gradually getting quieter until you get in the back there's a mathematical equation for it um you know once you're in the second or third row you're just ruining your sound don't do it it sounds bad Okay, so what type of environment is the best acoustic? Uh, one with a, a larger space? Yeah, but and it's then, also the one that you have. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, it's the one you have access to. Okay, and the do's and don'ts would be don't get too far away from mm -hmm. your mic, um, but don't get too close, right? Because it'll, right. it'll get too hot. Right. Well, yeah, and you can that's where you can adjust in gain structure. You want your recording device to be recording 
as loud as it can get, as uh, you can get as hot a signal going in with your gain structure. That's your, your trim, your preamp. However, you want the signal to be as hot as possible without clipping. It's not like working with tape. Tape can saturate a little bit, and that's actually pleasant. We add uh, tape saturation to a lot of things in order to beef up the sound, to make the quieter stuff a little bit more vibrant. You know, like it stands up in the mix a little bit more. It's, it, for lack of a better term, it's a little bit louder and easier to listen to. If your recording's too quiet, then people are going to have to turn it up, and it's just going to add self-noise, because all equipment has self-noise. And this is the hitch for flutists. You are working with an acoustic instrument. This isn't like you're making a rock record. You're not putting a hot signal into a microphone. You're putting a relatively quiet instrument in an open space into a recording system, so it's always going to be somewhat quiet relative to the records you hear on the radio. So your gain structure is, if you, in digital, if you clip, that's it. It just chops the waveform off once you get to, it's negative 60, 120, all the way up to zero. Once you hit zero, it doesn't go any further. That's a ceiling, and you're just bashing your head against the ceiling, and it's cutting the waveform off, making it flat, and you're going to get some terrible distortion. So you always want to do a test, and it's, it's something you have to figure out. It's like making bread. Did I proof it enough? Did I need it enough? Is there enough water in it? It's a balance. You have to learn. It's, there's no quick, easy fix until you've learned what all the elements are going into it. I can't describe the confusion I have that uh, sometimes my iPhone records me so well just normally and we all have conversations in the flute world about all the processes we put our sounds through uh, to get to posting and I actually don't do any processing. I use my iPhone and its sound sometimes is better. I've put up a microphone and put GarageBand in and recorded simultaneously the video and the audio and then put it under my video um, from GarageBand and it doesn't sound as good even then. So it's just in interesting to to talk about what, what equipment is really the best. Um, you know, do we need to invest in this big microphone? I know I did for my podcast, but it's not really needed for my recordings at home. Well, when you're at home, the idea is, are you going for a dry sound? It's a lot of it comes down to the detail that you're capturing. Um, there's, you can tell immediately that some phones, I, I work on these remote collaboration projects, virtual choirs and virtual orchestras, where you have lots of squares on the screen. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say it here. Samsung makes better cameras. Um, but when you use the pro codec on here in the pro settings, you can actually get a very decent sound out of these. And they're designed to be a good averaging of sound. But, um, when you start getting into microphones, it's like, well, where's the trade-off? Where do you reach that point? You're, you're using a Blue Yeti. That's a $100 microphone. It's not bad. Gets the job done for podcasting. Um, for recording music, I wouldn't 
wouldn't go there necessarily. Um, right now, I'm speaking through a Neumann U87. This is the microphone that I use to record Pasacalia. This is the microphone set that I use to do all of the anatomy of sound shows and all of your recitals up until about 2017 when I got myself a pair of DPAs, and that's what I use for concerts now. That's what all major symphonies use. Um, and, and that's the Gobert Ballad. The Gobert Ballad was done with DPAs and an RCA 7070X, which you can't buy right now because they are discontinued. Mine is a 1965 vintage, and I'll demonstrate it here in a minute. Um, but you know that's that's outside of the realm of what most people will want. Um, I get the question all the time: What's a good microphone for under two hundred dollars? And my, here's my answer: There isn't one. But or define good. Here I'm gonna do an audio sample. This is me talking through my Neumann right now, and I'm going to switch to my Sennheiser handheld live vocal microphone. This is a Sennheiser 935, um, and this is what like a rock singer would sing through. It's a dynamic microphone, so it's not as detailed, but it has a nice kind of, it's like the Shure, 50, the Shure SM58, which is your standard vocal mic that you see every singer singing through in a club or in a rock show or something. Um, so this is the Neumann. This, whoops, sorry, let me get my gain structure here. So trying to match for gain, this is me now talking through my Sennheiser. And you probably notice that it's a little, it's a little woofier, and you probably don't hear as much of my diction. It's a different sound. Mm -hmm. Now, this microphone requires a ton more gain that because it's not an active capacitor. That's not as sensitive as the Neumann. Now, Louder or softer is the first thing that most people hear. What you want is detail. And that's where, that's why when you're making classical recordings, you usually steer yourself towards high-end condensers because they have a capsule design and electronics design that is very low noise, so you can get a lot of gain out of it without adding system noise to it. The microphone has noise, the preamps have noise, your interface has noise. You want to eliminate noise at every stage. Um, you know, this microphone is designed to be durable. You know, it's it, it's built like a tank. I could hammer nails with it. My U87, I couldn't do that. But my new U87 is going to give a tone center that is more accurate and a top end that's going to be have a much smoother sheen to it, which is why it's nice on flute. Um, let me go back to my U87 here. What is gain? Gain is amplification. So um, microphones put out a signal that's usually measured in millivolts and then it has to be amplified in order to print to your recording system or to go through speakers so the first stage is the sensitivity how much power are you putting either in how much power are you putting into the signal once you're once the signals come in you're adding amplification so the small amplifiers that are in your preamps are basically driving the sound and with a bad preamp, you're going to start to hear noise. It's not clean electronics. Um, the you, you can get preamps that are as much as fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a channel, or you go with a nice mixing console. You know, an SSL four thousand is you know, five hundred thousand dollars. We're not doing that, but that's what you're running your microphones through, and you're always trying to go for either clean or a flavor because some preamps, tube preamps, and whatnot. Uh, they will add a little bit of flavor, a little bit of body, or accentuate a certain harmonic range, as will microphones. 
Talk about what a preamp is. A preamp is an outboard device that you plug your microphone into, like a mixing console or an actual standalone preamp unit that drives the signal of the microphone for your recording system. Now, your interface, your microphone has a preamp built into it. That's what the knobs on the back are for. Correct. And that my gain is very low. Right. Yeah, because you're talking right up on top of it. It's designed to be used for people who are talking close and getting a good basic dry sound. Um, most recorders, like if you have a Zoom handheld recorder, the H4N or something like that, it has preamps built into it. That's usually the first stage of failure is that your preamps, when you're recording at a distance of you and a piano, is you're going to need a lot of gain to get the signal up so that it's actually listenable and you're adding self-noise. So my preamps, I don't worry about that because I'm, you know, I record with an Apogee Symphony that's a $10,000 unit that has built-in pre's that I really like or a True Precision 8 or I might have millennias or graces and those things run about ten a thousand to twelve hundred dollars a piece like per channel then you put eight of them together and it gets pretty expensive so you're basically looking at what's affordable like what you want to get the most bang for your buck and my recommendation is usually to find a clean preamp um i i'm reluctant to call out individual companies because I'm not endorsed by these, but you want a preamp that is within a price range that's affordable to you, um, that gets the job done for what you're doing without breaking the bank, but also not sacrificing your sound. And you have to understand that there, when you, whenever you apply to an application, there are people out there that are submitting recordings that have been done by folks like me, where they've hired their engineer and they've come in with $12,000 worth of recording equipment and made a professional recording that is literally the same rig that I use to make your albums. So that's the trade-off, is how frequently are you going to do it and how much recording on your own are you going to do? And also, what is your willingness to learn the science behind it and understand the applications? Rule number one, use your ear. Get used to record, listen to recordings, listen to your recordings, adjust things and listen to the changes. That's where you're going to get the biggest education is if you have a trained ear, you should be able to hear the differences very quickly when you make adjustments. In order to stream audio, you are, you're, you're going to be faced with some level of compression and truncation of your original source material because it's throwing away data so that it can make the stream efficient. Um, number one, with a phone. When you're recording with a phone, all phones have two modes of video formats. Uh, one is high efficiency, and one is uh, what we like to call full quality, which would be like an H.264 codec or straight MP4. Um, that's going to be a much larger data occupancy within your phone, but you're going to end up with a significantly higher quality video and audio because it throws so much data away in the high efficiency modes. Those high efficiency modes are designed to make little tiny data packets of video that you can message people with. It gets the job done. It's not supposed to be high quality. Never use that for recording anything where you want to hear detail. Okay, it's well, let me tone and stuff like that you can hear the basics when you're recording with your phone and that is a good thing that is a huge leap forward for accessibility for people who are recording themselves 
So where am I going to go on my phone to, to do this? I want everyone to do it with you if they're not driving their car. Where do we go on our phone to get the higher quality? Well, let's start with iPhone, number one. Um, go to your camera, go to your settings, and then you start scrolling down until you see formats. And under the iPhone, you're going to see most efficient and most compatible. Most compatible is the one you want to use because it describes underneath what codec it's using and why it's doing it. Um, there is a similar function within Android, which is, you know, efficiency versus quality. And if the recording is important to you, you know, your phone has a limited amount of storage in it, unless you have an enormous phone, which is where it's beneficial to have a flash recorder. You know, if you're just doing basic documenting your lessons, um, or you know, you're recording this Zoom chat, so you're getting it right there, but we still have limitations therein. If you want to make good quality recordings to use in post, like say you're recording a rehearsal, or you are recording a concert of yourself, or you're, you're going out on the road and you're doing a seminar and you want to record that, you record your performance, anywhere you can record your performance at high quality, then you're talking about microphone, interface and preamp, and a laptop or a good flash recorder. And I'm not talking about um, the small handhelds. I'm talking about something like uh, the sound devices, Mixpre's, or um, an Edderall or a Tascam recorders, the standalones, uh, field recorders, basically. But those get very expensive. You can make a decent recording with the smaller devices. You just have to put your gain staging in the preamp and not in the recorder, because the recorder is not going to have as strong preamps as you go down the food chain, you know, the cheaper recorders will have lower quality preamps that will add noise. Then it comes down to your format, you know, what bit depth and what sample rate. Let's go back to the fact that in post, the speeds could be different than what you recorded in. And I've had that trouble so often. So, so let's get a little deeper into this. So you're recording and you're saying, don't rely on your preamp to give you all that stuff, like your echo and your, your ambience, right? You no, know, that's, that's the room. That's, that's, that's how you gotta, gotta be the room. Let's step back and let's imagine that you got, you're at your university or your high school or wherever, and you have access to this hall or a church. There's a piano, there's a small staging area. Where do you place your microphones? Number one on a stand. Number two, use two microphones. You can't just do it with one because you'll end up with a mono signal. If you, if you buy one microphone, you are limited to mono unless it is a stereo microphone that has two capsules and two outputs. Um, that's, you know, that's the first thing I run into is people say, what's a good microphone? And I'd say, get a stereo pair of blank. And they go, oh, I need two of them? And I say, well, you have two ears. And that's how a stereo image works is you have your left and your right and you use them in one of a variety of stereo configurations. ORTF, DIN, NOS, XY, uh, midside, AB Omni, AB Cardioid. You know, there's different spacings and different height and distance. They all add up. And you want to get fairly close. You want to be the person in the front row. So go in the front row. Put your mics in the air so that it's an average distance equal from the piano and the flute. If the flute's too quiet, guess what? You're playing too quiet. Or the pianist is playing too loud. It's not the microphones. The microphones at a, you know, 
the beauty of high-end microphones is they only hear what's put in front of them. Now, yes, you start folding the room into it and the acoustics of the stage and everything, and those can get in the way. Well, how do you minimize that? You get closer to the source and you turn your gain down because the closer you get, the louder it is. Now you start getting into the idea of there's going to be artifacts that's going to hear spittle and noise and air and whatnot. How do you fix that? Be a better flute player. Don't. This is where you refine your technique. You should, it, you want, you should be practice room clean on the stage, and your microphones will hear exactly what you're putting into them. Trade-off is quality versus affordability versus sound versus application. So you are, let's assume the average isn't a university student, a conservatory student. So quality matters because you are competing with other people who, you know, they you want your recordings to sound as good as they can and you want to be as reflective of the detail in your sound. Now, can you do that with a phone? Yes, but the person on the other end has has to listen through. A little bit more in order to get the detail in the sound. Um, it becomes more critical when you're talking about um, applying for a doctorate, applying for a job, applying for a pre-screening pre audition versus um, applying for a university position where they're pre-screening candidates to get an interview. At that level, you should be making professional recordings. Um, now, the threshold, I would say, is probably about $500 for a pair of decent microphones. I'm going to say right now, I usually recommend the Rode NT5 as a starting point because it's a decent microphone that does not break the bank. Um, Spell that. R-O-D-E. They're an Australian company. The, we use them for hi-hats and for uh, strings and stuff like that in the live realm. It's um, the microphone that I kind of set as my starting point in my world is the Neumann KM184. And here, I'll plug one in and talk through it. It's a small diaphragm condenser. It sounds very nice. It does not hear as much of the space as you may want it to, but when you use it in a stereo configuration, um, you end up with a very, very clean result. And you're going to have accurate dynamics. That's another big thing, is whoever on the other end is listening back, you want to make sure that you're not truncating your dynamics through built-in compression on your recorder, you know, automatic gain staging. Turn that stuff off. You want microphone, preamp, recorder, straight. Um, let me uh, let me fire this guy up. And now you hear me talking nearby with a Neumann KM184 small diaphragm. It's got a nice sheen. It's not as open as the U87. It doesn't have as much in the low end, so it's not going to be as full, but it's going to be incredibly detailed. This is similar to what the Rode NT5 would sound like. Now, if I could pick up my bassoon and play it for you, you'd hear more of that, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I love these microphones because they're versatile, but they also have limitations as far as when you're making a recording of classical music because they don't pick up a nice space as well. This is a great microphone that you can use in pairs um, to capture the space of a small ensemble, meaning flute and piano, or a chamber ensemble. You know, we're thinking beyond COVID here, and you can get fairly close. You can move a little further back with these as a stereo pair because they're going to need to be a little bit more in the space in a stereo configuration to hear the space that you're in, unless it's an incredibly reverberant space. Most of the halls that you see at a university have less than one second reverb decay. 
Now, when I'm recording, I record in cathedrals that have four and a half second to five second decays. So, da, two, three, four, five. That's how long it takes for the sound to dissipate. Wow. So, you know, but the thing is, this the Neumann KM184 in a stereo pair, these are $1,200 a piece. That's my starting point for the work that I do, for what my clients expect of me. The next of step course. up. Yeah, and, and that's the unfortunate thing is high quality is going to cost you. But the road gets you in the door. AKG makes some nice microphones. The, um, the uh, 391s are really nice. Um, I tend to recommend to my friends who are faculty members that are building recording rigs that, you know, you're a faculty member. You need to have a good benchmark sound. Start with something like the AKG 414s, the XLS. They're about $1,700 a pair. Yeah, you get a sizable investment. The thing is, you can always sell a good microphone. You can't sell a piece of crap microphone. Once you buy it, it's yours, and it's going to be hard to unload. Now I'm going to switch back to the U87 here. So once we've recorded and we get it into a software program, I know you have some thoughts about editing. And again, if you're doing your DMA audition or you're doing your recital video, um, you want to get your engineer to hopefully edit that audio for you in a really expensive and wonderful software program. But um, we also want to know from you, Dave, our budget-friendly editing programs. I know I use GarageBand. Um, and then one for seasoned editors, maybe one that's easy to use or popular. What are your thoughts on that? Well, okay. I'll, uh, I'll be straight up. There's a freeware program for stereo audio called Audacity. It's one of the older original stereo editing and uh, DAW, DAW, I'm going to say the word DAW, Digital Audio Workstation, which is basically, it's like a tape machine and a mixing console, just like what I use, which is Pro Tools. Pro Tools has a tiering. There's uh, Pro Tools Basic, which is gets you in the door free. It's sort of like a trial version. If you want to do anything with it, you're stuck. You have to buy into the basic versions of Pro Tools, which are on a subscription service. Um, I love Audacity because I can, when I work with somebody like you, hey, here's your strip of audio that I need you to go through and choose takes on. How do I do that efficiently? Well, you want to be able to see the waveform and you want to be able to edit and you want to be able to move your cursor around quickly and easily in a non-linear fashion. Like, it's not like putting in a tape, pressing play, and you have to fast forward and rewind. Audacity is free. It's wonderful. GarageBand is free too. I hate GarageBand's interface. I cannot stand GarageBand. <laughs> it makes my head hurt. Cubase is wonderful from Steinberg. Steinberg Nuendo is, um, that's another major uh, DAW that a lot of professionals use, specifically in the classical world. And it has lots and lots of tools therein, and it's about $1,000. You don't need to go there. But Cubase, for people who want to try doing any sort of multi-track, you know, people who are layering themselves up and making on choirs of themselves. You could start with some decent decent form of DAW where you have all this functionality. It's going, there's a point in GarageBand where you're gonna hit a wall when you try and do something. Plus, you're also talking about whether or not you're adding plugins. I roll around with at least $5,000 worth of plugins in my, my USB sticks, but you don't need to do that. What's a plugin? A plug-in is, you know, when you see pictures of studios and there's all that rack equipment behind you, compressors, equalizers, reverb units, various other things. 
uh, emulations of mixing consoles, uh, virtual instruments that you can put through a MIDI keyboard. That's what plugins are. It's software versions of hardware, and it's a much more cost-effective way to get a get all the tools you need to manipulate your sound without having to buy that racks and racks of expensive hardware. You don't really need plugins to do the work that you're doing as a basic flute player. You should not be adding reverb. You should not be adding compression. You should not be manipulating your sound in any way, shape, or form. You need to be sending photographs, a good quality photograph. Like imagine, you think Ansel Adams, high quality camera, high quality lens, take the picture with the proper exposures. It's exactly the same for recording. Good mic, good, good pair of mics, good preamp, decent recorder call it a day um and if for some reason you don't record yourself loud enough there's a thing called normalization where it scans the waveform it finds the peak it increases it to zero and it create or wherever you set your threat your 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 ceiling and then it increases the entire waveform that much so that you're not clipping but you know that you're using the full value of headroom that your recording system will allow it's it's very simple. There's it, it, people try and make it way too complicated. Um, use your ear, make it sound natural, and creating a decent stereo image. Where and how you position your microphones makes all the difference in the world. You have a nice pair of microphones. You put them in row four. It's gonna sound a lot worse than if you put them in row one. Look at where a professional places their microphones when you see somebody doing a professional recording. There's a reason they put their microphones in that place. And there are some people who profess to be professionals that don't put their microphones in the right place, but still make, you know, they can make decent recordings, but you can make better recordings if you play around with where you position the microphones, because that's essentially where you're putting your ears in the hall. Do you want to be in the back of the hall or do you want to be in the front row? And if you record from the back of the hall, the first thing that tells an audition committee is, I'm trying to hide something. If you add reverb to your sound, that says, I'm trying to hide something. No amount of post-production, reverb, or any other additive is going to make you sound better if you don't play your instrument with a beautiful sound and good technique and good musicality. You're just taking a picture. And call it a day. And call it a day. It is what you are. And in two weeks from now, you may find out that you hate the way you sounded two weeks ago. That's how it should be. We should always be making, you know, there are recordings I made 10 years ago that I'm horrified by because I was like, oh, I should have done this. But there's also, I didn't have those tools or, oh, I kind of had to rush to get that done. And this actually doesn't sound bad. But in hindsight, mm, I could have done this. I'm always second guessing myself. I always feel like, I could be doing better. Last night, I was driving around with a record I made and released earlier this year, and I was criticizing myself, thinking, should I have done this or should I have done that? I like the way this sounds, but it could be this. And then other days, I think, wow, that was really good. How did I do that? And it's the <laughs> same recording. I'm, I'm second-guessing myself against work that I did that I love sometimes and I hate other times. And what that is is psychological. Everybody says, hey, I need to make an MP3 of my thing. And I say, no, no, don't use MP3. Nobody should be using MP3 anymore. MP3 is a dead format. It's compressed audio 
it's th you take your recording. Recordings start with a WAV file, which is either, you know, there's bit depth and sample rate, 16-bit or 24-bit. That's the resolution. And then your sample rate is how high in the audio spectrum are you recording. Um, that's a little less relevant to the sound quality unless you're recording harmonics and you're dithering things from high res like 96 or 192 down to 48 or 44 one those are sample rates which are designed to work with cd and video everybody should be recording ideally at 48 at this point because 44 one only really applies to compact disc um now when you take your wave file or your aif file which is uncompressed straight audio and you turn it into an aac codec or an mp3 codec that is what's known as a lossy format that audio is having parts of it thrown away and it's being re-encoded in a more efficient manner so that it's less data it gets it takes up less storage it takes less time to go across the internet but it also has a significant drop in quality now that's arguable these you know, the standards have been set so that mp3 and aac are roughly in the ballpark where you notice it is in long-term listening. If you listen to a full piece as a 24-bit WAV file or a 16-bit WAV file, and then you listen to the same thing at an MP3 codec of 128 or 256 kilobytes per second, you know, kind of uh, MP3 standards, Spotify, iTunes, they only use compressed formats. You're going to notice that your ear gets tired. And I want to show you. So this is your Go Bear, third Sonata, the 24-bit master file, WAV. Open and smooth, clear. All right, now I'm going to close that and I'm going to open an emulated codec. This is going to be the same file. However, at specific points, you're going to hear it cut out. You're, you're going to hear a blip. And in that blip, that's where I'm switching it to mp3 codec and i'm going to illustrate what what we're listening to as we go you're going to hear you're going to hear a harshness in a little bit of added harshness in the high frequencies and you're going to see that it's not as full in the low end so this is the wave Isolate the artifacts that are getting introduced into your sound. Now it's at a lower bitrate. Now, if you listen very carefully, that's everything that's getting baked into your sound. What? That's everything that's being added to your sound when you encode with MP3 or AAC. Listen, it it it, it gets people, worse. Some people need that, I guess. Dave Shaw, make it go away. Give it one sec. And then I'm going to turn the codec off. Now this is the straight wave file again. So what that was, let me get back to full screen here.
That's crazy. Yeah, that's what that is. Is that's um, that's uh, Isotope Ozone has a codec preview where you can encode your file in real real time to hear the difference between your master wave file and what happens when you truncate it to an AAC file or an MP3 file. And then it also has a key in there. You can check all both of those formats and at varying bit rates because there are varying bit rates that you can, you can do 128, 256, 320. The higher the bit rate, the less you're going to hear those artifacts. But it can also isolate the artifacts that are being baked into your sound when you create those codecs. This is why you should never use compressed audio for professional applications. And you should never record at MP3. You should always record in WAV format or AIF format. Okay. So, and the video, where should that be in the settings of our camp? What, what should well, we record video is, video, is, video is different. You can, you know, if you really want to make a high quality video, it's the trade-off is the higher resolution the video, the mu it's going to take up much more space. The baseline standard is 1080, 30, or 24p. Um, and there are actually multiples. as It's uh, 29.976p or 23.976p. The difference between 30p and 24p is that 24p looks more like traditional film, like a movie. 30 is going to be a little smoother. You have more frames per second. Um, but it doesn't, it, I tend to like 24 because I like the look of film. Now, if you shoot at 4k, it's going to be twice the resolution, but it's going to make a massive file and you're going to run out of storage. You, it's also going to take a lot longer to upload a 4k video. There's no reason to send 4k videos unless you're doing a full support 4k and you can watch videos in 4k if you have a strong enough internet connection to stream that video. Um, I shoot everything in 4K for my work because it generally renders out a sharper image when I yeah, I deliver everything at 1080, which is high def. There's 720, 1280, 720 is technically high definition. It's a smaller standard. It's still more than your standard definition video, which is old school TV, 720 by 480, which is a 4-3 aspect ratio screen. We're now working with 16-9. It's a wider screen. Um, 1080 is largely regarded as the standard. But when you're doing live streams, most live streaming platforms will cap you at 720. They don't allow you to stream at 1080. 4K is just wasted data if you're streaming. So it's gonna take a lot longer to upload to YouTube, but you'll end up with a much higher quality video in the end, visually. It's not really gonna affect your audio. Your audio codec is gonna be the same. The standard audio codec that they use within most video codecs like when you're using an when you're doing an mp4 video your audio is natively going to be an aac and you can change the bit depth all of my videos go out with an aac codec of 320 because the mp4s that you put on youtube will not support wave well unless you're going to do post-production on them i would do them at 1080 and i would render them out at 1080 4k might give you more ability what you get with 4k is you are a lot you can do cropping and motion and post and you can deliver a 4K video, but you're not really going on a, on a phone screen, you're not gonna see the difference between 4K and 1080 very easily. 1080 is usually fine. That's, you know, 4K is incredibly high resolution for small screens. The difference is the bigger the screen, the higher resolution you want it to be. And you want an example of that, you take your computer in and play a 720, a 1080, and a 4K video back to back 
in one of your halls on the projection screens, that's where you're really going to see the difference. Or if you have a large TV, but on a computer screen, yeah, you'll see you know, with the with a lot of the screens that are coming out now, you will see the difference between 1080 and 4K. 1080 is fine. That's how most people are delivering their videos. If you want to save data and rendering time, don't bother with 4K unless you're really going to tweak it in post. Now, the frame rate, 60p versus, you don't. first of all, don't shoot an interlace. There's no reason to. Interlace makes it look like a soap opera or a TV. It's, it's half frame versus half frame. It's smoother motion. It's good for sports broadcasts, but it doesn't look as good as progressive, which is photograph, 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 which is what's, it looks more like standard film. 24 means it looks like film. It, there might be a little bit of stuttering of motion. 30 is going to be a little bit smoother because you're fitting more frames into that second. You're fitting six more frames into that second. 60 is going to give you very smooth motion. It's going to look more like a progressive, like an interlace scan video. But do you really need it? If you're going to do slow-mo, you want to be using 60 or 120 because then you smooth the motion as you slow it down. I use 30 occasionally. I use 24 most of the time because I want my stuff to look like finished film. But the frame rate is is not really relevant. That's a matter of personal taste. It's not affecting the video quality. Dave, just leave us with some etiquette when we're recording ourselves. I know you have to count to three or five or so before you start. And I know you have to leave some space at the end and not move and, and have the room be mm -hmm. quiet. You can't just stop playing and then start walking away and going off to turn off your recording device. Can you give us some etiquette about recording ourselves? Well, you always want to, you don't react to what you do. You know, imagine that you're performing. You should always, whenever you're on camera and you're about to do a take, give yourself some air to fade in, give yourself some air to fade out. The performance starts before you play and it ends after, long after the sound has dissipated. Um, those, the, the etiquette of making a recording is, um, it, it's just about being realistic. The thing that I tell people over and over again, the best advice I can ever give somebody in making recordings of themselves is when you're practicing, record your practice, but there's a methodology for that. Number one, at the end of your practice, whatever you've been working on, record it, then press stop and put it away. Do not listen to it. Then you come back the next day, pick up your instrument, warm up, then listen to the recording you made at the end of your practice the day before. You're going to hear it from a third-person perspective. Listen to it as if you were listening to somebody else playing. Then practice. Be aware of the things that you want to make better, the things you want to improve on, the things that you like, that you want to keep or maybe accentuate. Um, you know, what's making it through to the listener and what's not making it through. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Richard Bean is, sometimes you have to hit people over the head with nuance. You know, if you're making a dynamic change or a retardando and you're going from one to three, out in the audience, it sounds like a one to one and a half. Maybe you need to go one to five, and then out in the audience, the audience perceives a one to three. You might have to over. You might have to do things a little bit more to put it out there. Now, in this methodology of recording yourself, not listening, and then listening the next day, practicing, then recording yourself again, and then putting it away, and then the next day you repeat that over and over again. Within about two weeks, what you'll notice is your first person ear, which is what you hear while you're playing versus what you hear when you're listening and you've forgotten everything that you've done. You're listening from a third person, more objectively perspective. That gap is gonna to start to close gradually. 
and you're going to be able to listen to yourself more objectively while you're playing. So you won't, you know, we've, we've all run into the situation. You play a take of something of a movement, then you go back and listen to it and you go, wow, I hate the way I sound, or I didn't think I did that. I was like, wow, that sounds so different than what I thought when I was playing. No, you don't want to have to go back and listen to it. You should know in your head when you're done with that take, what it sounded like objectively to the person that's listening to it on the other end. That's, a, that's something that's a gift you can give yourself, but it takes time and it takes practice. You have to develop it over time, just like double tonguing or, um, you know, or embouchure or something like that. It's muscle memory. It's, it's, it's muscle memory for your brain and your ears is learning to psychologically listen to yourself as if you were in the audience and knowing, you know, it's being able to distance yourself from your playing while you're actively playing. It's very hard to do, but once you get there, boy, is that a gift. And it'll take you, it, it means that you're going to make exponential progress. That, that's another thing about recording etiquette. You should always record the entire piece first and then go back and do sections, right? Unless you're not allowed to edit. Unless you're not allowed to edit. Okay, okay. And, and I'm going to say something ethically. If they tell you don't edit, don't edit. Don't. You're just, you're, they're going to know. It, it, it's not helping you. And plus, that's why they ask for a video, because you can't edit a video without seeing the motion shift on a single camera. Got it. But yeah, but you know why I did that is because I know that it, I think that's, that's speaking to any flutist who's working with a recording engineer. If the recording engineer knows you, and trusts you. I know what you're capable of because I listen to you play a lot. And I also know you're, I also have the little bit of that Amy Porter psychology in the back of my mind because we're friends. I know when you're fed up with yourself. I know when you're frustrated by something that is either in your control or that you're just a little tired and you, you're not getting it right there. And I know that what your, what your standard of excellence is for yourself, like where your limit is. And if I don't think you've got it, I'm not going to say, yeah, go ahead, do it again, because there is a point of diminishing returns. You could do three takes and it gets better, better, better. And then it gets worse, 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 worse. Very rarely do you do a million takes and have the last one be good. It's going to be one or two usually. Um, but it's knowing that it's, it's knowing what you're capable of putting out there. And you've already given me a benchmark of what it is you're trying to achieve. And if I don't hear, I'm just a musical yardstick. I'm just telling you told me how long and did you measure up to that length? And I'd say, well, objectively, no, you didn't. You you were like seven eighths of the way there. We need that extra eighth. You need to go that extra that extra step further in order to get what I know you'll be happy with when you walk away from the session and listen to it in three days. And and that's that's my dedication to the project is I don't want to cheat you in a recording session out of the advice and objective ear. That's me being like a, a producer. Sometimes my job is to just shut up and press record and make sure it sounds good and let somebody else make the decisions as to whether or not it's a good recording. And the higher you go up the food chain in the, in the classical music world, the more, or in the music world in general, the more that comes into play. You are hired for a job, show up and do it, keep your mouth shut, smile, and be efficient and pleasant to work with. 
I think the customer could also have some uh, respect for the engineer, which is book you well in advance, uh, give you enough time. Can you talk about that? How one of your biggest pet peeves is how everybody wants it now or yesterday? Yeah, don't assume that you're the only person that's making a December 1st pre-screening video in the middle of November. That's that's the that's the basics. And, you know, I have to say most of the students are pretty respectful now about understanding how busy, you know, what what the flow of the year is. You know, if you're going to make a recording in September, yeah, you pick any day, any time. It's not busy because nobody else is recording. But December 1st is my nemesis because there's always that, hey, I need to make a recording on November 16th. Well, November 16th was booked back at the end of September when the people who actually understood what the scheduling plan was booked me long in advance. That That's going to happen to every recording engineer. It's like, it, you know, it's like uh, Black Friday, you know, the fire sale. You show up, you show up expecting that you're, hey, I'm going to go in and get a new TV. Well, guess what? So did 300 other people and they're already in line in front of you. Wah, wah. <laughs> Right. So, so talk about the cheap, fast. Oh yeah. The, 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 yeah. Good. The triangle of service, good, fast and cheap. You may only pick two for each project. It can be fast and cheap, but it isn't going to be good. You can pick good and cheap, but it isn't going to be fast. You can pick good and fast, but it's definitely not going to be cheap. Oh, thank you. Look at your preferences, people. Every program has preferences. Everything has settings. You got to look under the hood. You got to learn about your computers. You need to learn about file formats and the different things that are out there. That's got to save everybody so much headache. Oh, Dave Jall, this has been so informational, inspirational. Thank you so much. I just It's so logical. And um, I hope you've you know gotten out what you needed to tell flute players because you record a lot of flute players. Mm-hmm. And one, I'm going to say it right here, just to sum it up. If it sounds bad, fix it. If it looks bad, fix it. If you don't know how to change it, look it up. The resources are out there. And you may reach a certain point at which you have a tool and you're trying to make it look and sound a certain way, but you've reached what we call the paywall, which is, ah, in order to do that thing, you kind of have to jump up. I want to record in a dark church. Why does it look so grainy? Well, you're using a lower quality camera that doesn't do well in low light settings. That's where you have to buy a professional camera that has high ISO and a very sensitive sensor. It's going to cost you a lot of money to get that, but it will make, that's the solution to making it look better or add light, <laughs> you know, stuff and like that. Or <laughs> like, why is my recording so noisy? Turn off the heater, turn off the HVAC. Oh, yeah. Unplug the refrigerator. Listen, my fan on my computer, if it starts going off, I, I have to stop the take. And 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 I'll that's the last thing I'll add. Yeah. Is that if you know that a take is bad, stop playing and stop start over. Don't don't go on. Uh and and also conversely, if you only made a very small mis, you know, mistake if you will, a, a very small blip that is inconsequential, you should keep going because you don't know the the magic you could create if you stop you know, if you keep stopping. So, uh, and you might make, and if you did another take, you might make more blips than just that one. Yeah. One blip or five blips. Yeah. Well, this has just been amazing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We, we had 
so many questions for you. You answered all of them, and we just thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure. It's, you know, anything I can do to help out, you know, we've we've been through a lot musically together and personally, and, you know, I have a, a high level of reverence for the, for the flute world, you know, for everybody out there that's listening to this. Um, you know, flutes, I think about you guys all the time. I have a lot of colleagues in the flute world, and, um, you know... I've learned something from listening to each one of you. You know, my the the repertoire of knowledge that I use to go into recording sessions, a lot of that has come from the experiences I've had listening to you all grow as flute players. And I've seen some people go from a freshman to big jobs. And, you know, I couldn't I couldn't be I, I I'm gonna say right now, what am I wearing on my head? Okay. I am, uh, uh, oh, I'm wearing, you're wearing. Rachel? I'm wearing my Rachel Wolf Rachel. custom, my Rachel Wolf custom knit hat that she traded me for a recording session. She That's... said, "Dave Shaw, I, I noted that I loved her knitting, and she said, "Well, I'll make you some hats." I said, "Okay, well then I'll give you a free recording session." And I still wear this hat all the time. And you know that was that's one of my favorite things about you know when you're out there working in the world, what can you do that that you know helps lift people up and you know rachel's one of my favorite flute players out there we i still see her when i go down to san antonio hi rachel if you're listening love you miss you and and he will work for knitted caps <laughs> that's yes. amazing thank you again i really appreciate it hey it's my pleasure and um everybody out there just you know record your practice and just use your ear keep using your ear that's that's the best metric you have for what you're doing was such great information. Thank you, Dave Shaw. You're so talented and so professional. And thank you for being behind the board for me for over 20 years. Dave Shaw can be found at DaveShawSound.com. Join us for our next podcast when we talk about everything new at the University of Michigan Flute Studio. It's our Go Blue Flutes edition. Thanks for being in Porter Flute Pod. I'm so grateful for you.